As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. If you enjoy the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast, check out our new daily news program, the Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It gives you the day's top stories with context in just 15 minutes. Look for it in your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern every morning. Subscribe on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And stay tuned for a sample of today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak at the very end of this podcast. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. At what point does the Fed either lean into banking crisis, credit contraction, some sort of significant lag versus this feeling perhaps we need to revisit the belief in that dreaded six handle or potentially much more restrictive rates? Something to worry about. And if you want to worry, you can look at a bull market uh, effort right now. We're seeing many houses are just higher. At the Morgan Stanley shop, they are not. Michael Wilson is CIO, Chief U.S. Equity Strategist at Morgan Stanley. And one of your themes, Mike Wilson, is there's a complete misguess on the interstate game as addressed by the Fed today and followed by your Ellen Zatner. Whaley there of BlackRock says persistent inflation. Is that a core reason for your uh, caution in the equity market? No, it's actually not, Tom. In fact, our view is that inflation is going to come down. And while that potentially is very good for bonds, it's not going to be good for stocks because that's where the earnings power has been coming from, right? This this is really our boom-bust thesis. The reason we were so bullish in 2020 and 2021 is because we expected inflation to drive a profits boom. And now when inflation comes down, you're going to have a profits recession. So that's really where right. we're differentiated from an equity standpoint. You know, Ellen, as you know, is looking for a pause today, too. She's not looking for you know any more hikes, really, the rest of this year, but a very slow path in terms of cutting next year. What are you, what are you looking at going forward in terms of client responses, how they push back against <laughs> the bearishness that you've been expressing? Yeah, look, I mean, we're in a weird situation now because I feel like on the fundamental side, our earnings call has been spot on. So a year ago, just to kind of remind listeners, you know, we were calling for an earnings recession and we were somewhat dismissed, but of course now we're in one. And the only difference now is that we're just saying it's going to persist. Whereas I think most people, the pushback is, no, the earnings recession is over. 
and we're going to see a reacceleration in growth in the second half of the year. And that's what the consensus is forecasting. So that's what the pushback is. So in other words, you're saying that you got it right if you strip out some of the big tech names and that there was an earnings recession that played out in lower valuations of some of these shares. And you're saying it's going to continue, not necessarily talking about the headline <coughs> level of the S&P as much as these particular stocks fighting against the idea of a broadening out of the AI rally. Is that correct? Well, actually, the technology stocks had the biggest earnings recession. I mean, you know, you look at the communication services and some of the technology stocks, they had, they were, their earnings were down significantly in the fourth quarter. That's why they sold off so sharply in the fourth quarter. So they had an earnings recession last year. And the presumption is, is that's over. And now that's going to reaccelerate. And that's where we disagree. We think that including tech, not just tech, but overall, the earnings recession is going to persist into the second half of the year. It's going to get worse before it actually improves next year. If we get a Zentner economy or Ed Hyman moving down to 3%, dare I say under 3% inflation, David Rosenberg up in Toronto clearly in that camp as well. I'm thinking of the partial differentials on the income statement to get to the Wilson earnings call to get to 3,900 or whatever on SPX. And to me, it's all at the revenue line in that it is, is the core of your call with your security analysts that revenue growth will disappoint. That's exactly right. So last year, the earnings recession I just referred to was all a cost issue, right? These big tech companies right. overinvested, thinking the <clears throat> pandemic boom was going to continue at the same pace. Of course, it did not. And that was a, a problem for uh, uh, discretionary, consumer discretionary, as well as some of the financial companies, et cetera, companies that overinvested. Now, what we're going to see is the top line disappointment. Okay, maybe it's not a recession. But like Ellen's right. forecast is 0% GDP growth, effectively. That's going to feel like a recession because your pricing is going to evaporate. And we're seeing that now in goods. So there's this big dichotomy between goods inflation and services inflation. Mm -hmm. I mean, goods inflation is back to the 2% level. In fact, it's probably going to go deflationary right. for a lot of businesses. That's your revenue growth disappointing. How do you allocate here? Do you participate in the market or is cash a very comfortable place to be? Both. So, you know, and look, we see that that's a strategy. It's <laughs> both. Yeah, on one hand both. and the other hand, right? So, uh, take my economist hat. But look, I mean, in all seriousness, I mean, cash offers you a great risk adjusted return. We're overweight cash. Okay, there's nothing wrong with that. But we still are fully invested in equities, too. We're just underweight our normal allocation. And we've been that way for the last 18, 24 months. I think this is misunderstood, Lisa. I think people look at Wilson, they go, get out of the market. And this is a hugely important Yeah, issue. every time he comes on, he says, I'm fully invested. It's not a matter of just simply uh, hiding under a mattress. My question is, what happens if there's a recession and nobody cares? What happens <laughs> if there's an earnings decline and people shrug it off and say, well, look to the future and there's going to be this incredible American exceptionalism and where else are you going to put your money? Well, this is our story for 24 and 25, right? This is why we're in a different, uh, difficult situation right now where we see the near-term risk reward as lousy. But if we look out 24, 25, this, and this is what people are getting excited about, capital, ex, you know, capital expenditure boom for things like reshoring, green energy, traditional energy, um, you know, retrofitting buildings, et cetera. And now, of course, AI. So this is exciting. The problem is, is it's a cost first, and then it's a productivity benefit. Well, people are looking past it. I mean, this is sort of the frustration when people say that there's a divergence between bond markets and <clears> stock markets. <throat> they say, well, the bond market's looking at the now. It doesn't look very good. And stock markets are looking to 24, 25. What's to make them look at now, right? What's the catalyst to bring them down at a time when people can look past near-term pain and see what you're seeing? Well, typically it's price. Okay, so we, we're very disciplined on price. You know, you know, we always get kind of categorized as the perma bear, but I remember, you know, calling the low in October. We called the low in March. 2020 because of price. You know, so we're very disciplined. Most people are not disciplined because of FOMO. 
And that's just the nature of markets. Markets are momentum-driven. Right. It feels better when they're going up. It feels better to buy things when they're going up. And that's where we are now. So the risk-reward mm-hmm. in the short term is lousy. So I think it's going to be price, Lisa, which will change people's minds. Now, we could be wrong. Maybe we don't get a, a fatter pitch that we're hoping for. But we're also not worried it's going to run away from us. And we can buy the stock market kind of right here probably 12 months from now. What's the market bet right now? Because I see a lot of indicators that say people are comfortable with Mike Wilson's calls. They're really afraid of this bull market. And they're cautious. What What is the bet that Morgan Stanley sees by the investment in public, by the hedge funds, by long-only buy-side institutions? Well, I mean, I think our once again, our view is we're, we're, we're I mean, I'm in a position of luxury. I don't have to put capital to work every day for monthly performance. We have asset allocation, which is kind of measured on a longer-term basis. So I had the luxury of time, right? So our asset owner clients had that advantage. And that's what we try to take advantage of. Folks who don't have the advantage of time have to kind of participate at the worst possible moment. And that, by the way, it also includes at the lows, right? So the opportunity that was created in March of 2020 is because people were being forced to divest, and we were happy to pick up those shares at, at cheap prices. What do you think is the most overpriced aspect of the S&P right now? Well, I think uh, this, is, this is an interesting question because most people assume it's only 10 stocks. That's actually not true. The median multiple for the S&P 500 today is the same as the market cap weighted multiple. It's close to 19 times, 18 and a half, 19 times. So it's a very broad overvaluation. Now, I would say the sectors that are cheap, okay, the only ones that are appearing cheap now are energy and financials. The question there, of course, is what are the, what are the earnings going to do? You know, because they're cyclical businesses. Well, focus on energy there. you got 20 seconds of energy there. Is that the place to be? Well, I think energy at the stock level, there's there's definitely opportunities, and in financials too, right? So, like the regional banking crisis created opportunity in individual financial services stocks, and I think that's what we're trying to do now. We're trying to find these one-off opportunities as opposed to worried about the stock market overall. Mike Wilson, thank you so much. With Morgan Stanley here with a call, thirty-nine hundred is where you are now. You want to make some news here? <laughs> thirty-nine hundred year end, yes, sir. We're still there. Okay. You're going to let us know if you're changing the, Be the first call. <laughs> Mike Wilson, <laughs> uh, Morgan night. Stanley here. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash futureinvestor slash radio. Now we take a bigger, broader picture with Bruce Kasman of Chiefs of Economist and Head of Global Economic Research at J.P. Morgan. And we do this with this Columbia heritage of, in the modern day, Jeffrey Sachs, Richard Clarida, and, of course, the foundational efforts of Robert Mundell. Dr. Kasman, I want to cut to the chase here and talk of Jerome Powell, central banker to the world. Your focus is on continental Europe. What is the drama for Europe today in the decision making of Jerome Powell and the Fed? 
So as uh, you've already mentioned, it looks like the Fed is going to pause. The ECB is also meeting this week and is likely to tighten and also signal that they have more work to do. I think one of the big issues as we look at transmission here is about synchronization. Uh, there's obviously a lot of concern about a U.S. recession. We don't think the U.S. is falling into recession right now. But Europe is showing very strong divergence in performance. The service sector is doing well. The manufacturing sector is doing poorly. It has the same issues around bank credit tightening as the U.S. How the European economy plays out here is going to be a very important uh, factor in determining both the overall global picture and, and certainly have some impact on the U.S. as we go through the rest of the year. You and I, Bruce, have read Dooley, uh, Garber, Folkert's Landau and all the different macroeconomics coming out of David Folkert's Landau's work. And one of his great comments is there will be fiscal stimulus in Europe that will come to the rescue of Europe. It's a different fiscal calculation than Jerome Powell has. How does that play into what Europe will do off of this meeting today? So, um, I mean, the simple point here is I think there's more work to do for the ECB. Personally, I think the Fed will ultimately have more work to do here. It's taking a pause, but I don't think it's going to get inflation under control. And I think one of the things that um, people who are looking for an immediate recession uh, are missing is that while monetary policy has tightened a lot, fiscal policy is moving in the other direction. That's there in Europe. The recovery fund, as well as some of the emergency measures around last year's crisis, is fa as a factor. In the U.S., look at what's happening on defense spending. Look at what's happening in government hiring. State and local spending is high. This is a very different picture than we've seen um, over the last two cycles, where early in the cycle, fiscal policy in the U.S. and Western Europe tightened materially. Bruce, this is really interesting, the idea that fiscal stimulus, on one hand, will force central bankers around the world to tighten much more than people currently expect. Is that what's going on? Do you think that people are misguided in thinking that the Fed is done pretty much around here and is going to hold rates where they are because of the fiscal impulse? Um, I, I don't want to put too much weight on the fiscal st stimulus. I think it's one factor among two or three, which is promoting resiliency here. And I do think the most important factor in terms of what's going to drive more central bank tightening, if we get it, is the persistence of inflation, the underlying shift that's taken place in the inflation process, how that's playing through in a world in which we still have uh, damage done to labor supply and tight labor markets. That's the ultimate problem. And just from the point of view of the Fed today, uh, it's reasonable to take a pause. But what a pause is doing here, it's promoting risk appetite in financial markets, which is undermining monetary transmission. And it is, I think, signaling to the market that the Fed is gradualist on lowering inflation. And that works against the idea that there's some inflation that's becoming embedded in expectations uh, and wage and price setting. Uh, this is the problem the Fed has today. And that's one of the reasons why they're going to signal to us that they're not done. Uh, but it's going to be hard to find that balance here. I'm going to say something kind of sacrilegious. Let's say it's actually worse for risk markets right now if the Fed doesn't hike further and keeps rates where they are for a very long time. Isn't that worse than potentially breaking something and then having to come in with rate cuts and sort of doing a full reversal, the sort of slow bleed, this sort of boiling of the frog that a lot of people are anticipating? Um, ultimately, it might be. But right now, I think if there's anything we should appreciate as economists and more generally is that it's a lot. It's very difficult to actually forecast exactly where we're going to be in six to nine months. There is a risk the economy is going to slide into recession. The fact that the Fed is pausing, the fact that the Fed is telling us it's going to be gradualist on inflation in terms of bringing it down is a constructive signal that promotes resiliency. 
I think there is, on my mind, a likely scenario where inflation doesn't come all the way down and the Fed has to come back. Uh, but there is still some possibility that we have a soft landing. So I think for the near term, it is certainly a reasonable thing for the Fed to do. And it is certainly going to promote resilience in the economy. I do think more likely than not, it's not going to prove successful. And I think, as you say, we're going to pay a price for that. When you talk about the potential for inflation to come back or not come down all the way to where they'd like, is that driven by wages and some sort of wage price spiral that people are underappreciating? I think it's a bit of a mistake to, to put it on tight labor markets to focus particularly on a on what we call a Phillips curve relationship. I think what you've had happen here is two things. One is we've damaged supply in a way that it's not fully recovering, and particularly in the U.S. and Western Europe, it's about labor <coughs> markets in that regard. But I think the bigger issue here right now is that we've started to embed psychology in which wage and price gains are linked, which wasn't the case over the last 30 years. And I think in order to bring down inflation, you need to compress pricing power on the corporate sector side. Unfortunately, when you do that, that does hit labor markets. But it's a pricing power story. It's changing the behavior of businesses, removing that uh, price pressure that's coming through the system, which is something which is a break from what we've seen over the last three decades. Bruce, it's J.P. Morgan's fault. I'm going to go to Richard Clarida, the former vice chair and, of course, all his work in Columbia. And in an essay in The Economist, I'm going to say a month and a half ago, he really made a case that we're not going back to 2 percent, that this is a Fed that has to find 2.x percent, whatever the number is going to be. Your Michael Faroli changed the debate single-handedly. We're going to blame Faroli <laughs> by coming up with a potential GDP statistic that was well under 2 percent as well. Yeah. Do we have to adjust that now after all of this, this imputed inflation into the system, what the Biden stimulus has wrought? Do you have to adjust the Feroli potential GDP up, which makes it more comfortable to get to a Clarida statistic? So we've been running with a potential growth rate for the U.S. of about one and a half, really, as, you, as you're mentioning, for almost a decade now. Uh, and I think you're raising a very important point, which is there's a lot of stuff going on here that could have an influence on potential growth going forward, and specifically productivity growth, which is a key to the to the inflation outlook. I'm agnostic here. There's a lot of cross currents. I haven't seen anything that convinces me we're either materially raising or materially depressing a potential growth. I think we've done damage to supply in that we now have probably two and a half percentage points less of people in the workforce than we had on the pre pre-pandemic path we were on. That's the immediate problem and how that is interacting with underlying inflation psychology. If we get better potential, that'll help us. If we get worse, that'll you know make the, the trade-off worse. Uh, I'm agnostic on, on how that's going to play out, at least at this moment. I look, uh, Bruce, you know, it, it, let's bring it back to the festivities today at 2 p.m. I, I hate the skip and the pause chat. John busts my chops on it <laughs> nonstop. Bruce Kasman, are we just debating an asymmetric or symmetric outcome here? I'm clearly in the camp that it can be an asymmetric decision. Are you? Well, first of all, it's a divided decision. Keep in mind that probably close to half of this committee would vote for a, a rate hike. So it's going to be a pretty contentious debate. Uh, I also think it's hard to talk about a skip. Um, it's possible, but it's not our view. I think the Fed has six weeks to the next meeting. If it is actually trying to take stock of what actually is happening in terms of banking sector stress, monetary transmission, it's going to take more time to see that. But at the same time, I think they have to tell us that they have not uh, declared victory on getting inflation down. 
that there is pressure for them to move more and that the likely scenario, and I think it'll be in the statement, it'll be in the dots where we'll see an extra rate hike being pushed in, and it'll certainly be in more detail and more color in Powell's press conference, that they're more likely than not to continue raising rates sometime later this year. Bruce, do you think they'll care that equities are rallying? Um, I don't think the Fed's very sensitive to equities rallying, but I do think the broader picture here is that financial markets are showing very little stress. They've improved. Risk appetite has increased. Credit conditions have improved in the last two or three months. And there's a significant offset uh, to the tightening that's going on in bank uh, uh, credit. And I think that does matter to the Fed. And it, they're trying to manage that in a way that they don't unleash uh, unwanted exuberance here that they're going to have to uh, deal with later on down the road. Interesting. Bruce, wonderful to get your perspective. Just Looking brilliant. for a divided pause. Awesome. A little bit later on this afternoon. Bruce Kansman <clears throat> of JP Morgan. With us around the table, Anastasia Amoroso, <clears throat> Chief Investment Strategist over at iCapital. Anastasia, good to see you. Good to see you. I remember you sitting around this table with Tom and I maybe several months ago, I think early April. I think it was Good Friday, Payrolls Friday. Good memory. And you made the call that we would yeah, break out to the upside no on the S&P 500. You forget everything. <laughs> Had a really tight trading range up until yeah. that point. We've broken out. Everyone's on board with that move now, seemingly, or at least slowly they're capitulating. Where are you now? Do you have this view that we broaden out or do you want to de-risk and take some of those profits? I do think we're broad now, John, and I think we have been doing that for the last couple of weeks. And, you know, the reason for that, as Tom, you were just talking about, is this U.S. economy has been so much more resilient than anybody has expected. And so as a result, we've gone through the earnings downgrade cycle. And if you look at the earnings revision ratio, it is actually now positive for the last few weeks or for the last month or so. And so that instills a lot more confidence in the EPS part of this equation. And then, you know, at the same time, the Fed, whether it's a skip, whether it's a pause, the reality is they're not going to go 75 basis points for consecutive more meetings. So we're done with that. So we can have some stability in valuations as well. So that's why I think this rally does broaden out. The simple question is, is Apple underowned? But far more than that, is it your take that the institutional money, typical fundamental buy hold for three-year money has missed this market move and there is a general statement underowned? Massively underowned, Tom, and a lot of investors found themselves in chasing mode. And at first, it's kind of the high-velocity money, the systematic traders, the hedge funds, and guess what? They all piled into this market, and that's what propped it up higher. But then you look at the bond and cash flows, and what they have done versus the equity outflows. There's a massive amount of capital that could potentially pivot here, and I think this capital is going to be looking at valuations and saying, "Well, technology has had its run." By the way, I still want to be a tech investor. Just want to be a little bit prudent. About taking some tactical trade, you know, tactical trades off, but the money is going to look at valuations and say X technology, the multiple on the S and P is actually in line with its ten-year average. So that's why, John, I also think this rotation can broaden out, and I also want to bring China into the equation as well, because as pessimistic as everyone is on China, the great news there is China's CPI inflation is zero. You know, policy rates are higher. There's room to cut rates. There's room to stimulate in China. And the last few weeks, we've really seen the willingness of the policymakers to step up the stimulus, at least for now talk, but I think measures as well. Given that backdrop, if the Fed does have a skip, hawkish, whatever you want to call it, will that unleash unwarranted exuberance in risk assets in the U.S.? 
I mean, it already has, right? We sort of pre-traded the pause, the skip. And, you know, I think this exuberance is somewhat warranted. And by the way, if you go back in history and if you look at rate hikes, you know, the Fed hikes rates, but it doesn't cause an imminent recession. There's typically a period of time before the recession onsets. And there is this exuberance phase. I think some call it euphoria, where the market rallies for the 12 months after the Fed actually ends its hiking cycle. But the reason it rallies, Lisa, the reason I say it's warranted is because the economy is still hanging in there and the earnings still hang in there. So I think this exuberance might be justified. What's the tipping point? Let's say the Fed does hold rates here for a long period of time. When does the tipping point come when perhaps the pain starts to get felt, when perhaps this exuberance starts to wear out? I think the Fed would need to go higher and potentially much higher to really crack this economy. And, you know, I say that because if you look at this economy with 5% rates, yes, we're feeling strains here and there, and there's pockets of dislocation that are to come. But by and large, this economy is doing just fine with 5% rates. So I think you need to raise rates to a much more restrictive level for something to really crack that would cause the crack in the unemployment rate. Within your macro view, does a 60-40 allocation work? I can't make the math work in my head. Are you a 60-40 type or do you have to go to a different mix? Well, this year, anybody who's declared 60-40 to be dead obviously has been wrong. 60-40 is one of the top performing uh, things Off out there. a miserable there. year, Grant. Yeah, great, yeah, exactly. But if you look, Tom, over the last three-year, five-year, 10-year, 15-year period. And if we expand beyond the 60-40, and if I uh, broaden that out to private market strategies like growth equity, like venture capital, like uh, private equity buyout, like private credit, all of those things have actually outperformed the 60-40. So we want to look beyond the 60-40, and then it's not just something that worked last year. I think that's something that works for the next several years. Just to build on something you said about the labor market and how far Fed funds would need to go, where does that leave the bond market? Never mind equities. Let's put stocks to one side. Where does that leave fixed income, treasuries? What does a 10-year look like over the next 12 months? Yeah, I mean, I think the 10-year is supported around these current levels because, you know, if the Fed needs to go much higher, the front end of the curve rises, but the back end really doesn't because it's a function of the forward growth expectations. But if the Fed continues to hike rates, that means the recession probabilities likely rise. So I actually think the 10-year offers you know decent value around these current levels. And also, if we are wanting to prepare for a 2024 recession, that's what you buy. You buy the 10 year, you buy the 30 year. And um, I think that's a great balance to maybe some of the cyclical stuff in the portfolio. You think we're at that point now to make that move currently? I think you can. You know, I, I don't think you have to imminently hedge a recession. But I think if you're buying some 10 year treasuries into your portfolio, I think they can provide some stable value. Because again, the growth expectations are not likely to spike materially higher. Inflation expectations are not likely to move materially higher. So I think that's going to keep the 10 year anchored. Anastasia, awesome call on the equity market for the year so far. Thank you. Anastasia Thank you. Amoroso there. I did a Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more, Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Can I talk about Disney quickly? Please. I to talk about this. Michael morning. Schumacher's like he's on the edge of his seat. Is this when, like Little Mermaid review? When companies start throwing out dates like 2030, 2031. It's Draghi-esque. It's amazing. The third installment of Avatar is going to come out December 2025 instead of December 2024. Here we go, Tom. The two other Avatar sequels pushed back by three years. They'll come out in 2029 and 2031. Doesn't that feel like a lifetime away? 2031. Aren't we all going to be flying then? <laughs> exactly. We'll all be in augmented reality. Although, did you see The Way of Water? I mean, it was pretty technologically amazing. It was, it was very cool. Right. So imagine that they have to then add on to that. But yeah, it seems like Avengers it's... movies delayed a year For... to May of 26 from May and May of 27. Star Wars pushed back a year, 2026. It's all getting pushed back. What's Bob Iger up to? It's What's he doing movies. over at Disney? You know, Can you imagine being in the theatre business and you hear this? Death. In the last 24 hours, you want those movies like now. Well, this is, is it the writer's strike? No, it's got to be something bigger like budgeting or just the complexity well, of how it. How much is content no longer king and you don't necessarily have the same kind of budget to throw know. at it the same kind of way? Michael Schumacher saying, did I sign up for this? Michael Schumacher joins us now, global head of macro strategy at Wells Fargo. We're not going to look for a Little Mermaid review uh, from him. Michael, I want to talk about the challenge of Jerome Powell. And the way I do it is what Michael Rosenberg invented with his team at Bloomberg, which is the Bloomberg Financial Conditions Index. It is 11 ratios. It is so wonderfully complex. And it shows an accommodation. I'm not going to go to the math now, folks. But all you got to know is a positive number is a Accommodative and a negative is a tilt towards restriction. Is is the stock market hindering Jerome Powell's choice set, his degrees of freedom? Are we if we become accommodative, is seen by the BFCI at I think it's a point zero seven nine that he has fewer choices that he can make, fewer options that he can make today. Sure, it's a tightening cycle. That means conditions are supposed to tighten. And you look at the stock market up, what, 13% really since March. <clears throat> Granted, I know regional banks, et cetera, bad news. But still, equities have ripped. Corporate credit's doing really well. This flies in the face of banking credit conditions tightening. That doesn't really seem to add up. So I think Jerome Powell, you're right, Tom, he's got less flexibility. Yes. He somehow has to convey to the market, this is bad. But how does he do that? Tough. The only way he can do it, Mike Schumacher, based on my read of history, is to delay, delay pretend and delay. So we're going to go through today. He's going to read all sorts of statements that are going to be, you know, the answers are going to be written out in advance. Is this a meeting in preparation for July, hoping the facts change for Jerome Powell? Well, they could change. The one big thing between now and the July meeting, granted, the economic data flow pretty light, but you think about regional bank earnings, they start to report the regionals. This is, I think, July 19th is the first big day. The next Fed meeting is the 26th. So it's possible you get lots of noise, let's say, in the week or so ahead of the July meeting. But that seems like a long time away. I mean, heck, if Disney is delaying Star Wars three years, maybe the Fed can look out 
six, seven weeks into the future. But that, that seems like a stretch. Especially because perhaps their budget is a little bit less than the Avatar sequels. I am curious, Mike, how much we just have. A little. Pr- yes. <laughs> just a little. We've priced out rate cuts. That's what we've been doing over the past couple of months since the rate cuts priced in during the banking crisis that happened for a half a second in March. I'm now wondering, do you expect the market to start pricing in materially higher rates? As one person after another on surveillance this morning have come out and said there is more work to do and the dynamism of this economy is not going to crack under 5% rates. We think, Lisa, it's really been interesting. You make a great point. When you look at the degree to which rate cuts have been priced out for 2023, it's amazing. So early May, there was something like 90 basis points in cuts priced for this year. Now it's 15 or 20, give or take. If I look at 2024, it's about 130 basis points in cuts. We think that number goes down. Does it go to zero? No. Maybe it goes to 100, something like that. So a decent amount of rate cutting taken out. What I continue to be surprised by is why the markets are pricing so much easing by the Fed relative to other central banks. And we're talking again about next year. Or you can even look at it this year, the relative policy paths. Why is the ECB priced to hike 55 basis points between now and September and the Fed is priced for 20? And why does the market price the Fed to be effectively unchanged at the end of the year when other central banks are priced to be much higher. That makes very little sense to us. We think the market's got that wrong. Well, perhaps they've got that wrong, but based on what people are expecting from the Fed, they're only going to confirm that if they're going to skip. No, I mean, will that necessarily feed into some of the optimism and, as we were hearing earlier from Bruce Kasman, the exuberance in the risk markets? Yeah, the action today, Lisa, I would say is going to be all in the press conference and not in the statement. If you look at really the period of the last year. So go through the last eight Fed meetings, very, very consistently. Whatever the market does during what we would call the statement period, so call it two o'clock to 225 or what have you, goes into a U-turn once Chairman Powell takes the mic. So he walks back some of the policy moves, tries to explain a bit, tries to amplify, maybe talks about delaying, whatever it might be. The market says, oops, we got that a bit wrong. Let's go the other way. We're confused. So I think you'll get more of that today. So look at the the press conference and focus less on the statement. That's my recommendation. Looking forward to it. Great recommendation as well. Mike Schumacher of Wells Fargo. Mike, thank you for that. Let's get to a $3 trillion question. We do that with Tom Forte, expert at senior research analysis at DA Davidson. He got an Atari uh, playset years ago, and now he's turned it into a Mac Pro and a study of Apple, Apple, Apple. Tom, we need an update here on the vector of Apple up 40x percent off the January uh, beginning of the year. There's a persistency to the trend. What's your target as the trend continues? Do they blow through a $3 trillion valuation? Yeah, so maybe the word of the day is pause. So I think Apple's shares are going to take a pause here. I think the good news from the new product launch, the Vision Pro, which is the most significant new product launch since the iPhone in 2007, is priced into the stock. The stock's trading at a premium on an enterprise value to EBITDA basis, on a PE basis, and on a sales to EBITDA basis. So I think the good news is priced into the stock. I'm looking for shares to take a breather. The core unit thing is the iPhone. I believe there's a new iPhone language coming out, maybe a new iPhone chip. Can they keep innovating the iPhone to keep the unit cell persistency going? Uh, The answer is yes. But on a near-term basis, what does success look like for Apple? And it looks like low single-digit sales growth, definitely not double-digit sales growth. So you have a stock trading at a premium multiple relative to its history, 
The iPhone's doing amazingly well in a challenging macroeconomic environment, taking advantage of the networks, leveraging their 5G networks, uh, Verizon and such, and helping consumers buy the phones, subsidizing them, Apple offering buy now, pay later, all these different things. So yes, iPhone can carry the day. But I, again, I think a lot of this good news is already priced into the stock. Tom, will Apple use artificial intelligence and chat GPT type uh, of technology to make Siri better and to make it a more sort of intertwined aspect of the iPhone? The answer is yes. And I think that when when we started the discussion of artificial intelligence, so I've published 25 papers on the convergence of tech and retail. Uh, One a couple of years back was on the power of artificial intelligence. Uh, Apple, I think, appropriately discussed that it was a horizontal technology, not a vertical one. It makes all of its products better. Uh, hopefully, it'll make Siri better. We're also talking about augmented reality, and you talked about the Vision Pro, the $3,500 goggles that people uh, can put on and experience a new and improved world. What is the future of this? Is this the future of computing? Everyone talks about how this is revolutionizing things in a way that the iPhone did, but we're not really understanding the implications. Can you give us the sort of market case, who wins and who loses? So I'd like to think about it in, in the view of the metaverse. And our view is the metaverse will be a thing, not the thing. So 10 years from now, consumers will be accessing the internet in many different ways. Uh, they could have implanted chips, which is something Elon Musk is working on. Uh, AR, VR will be one of many ways that consumers will access the internet, but we don't think it'll be the dominant way. I do think the winner on the 3499 Vision Pro is Meta Platforms, which is offering a device for 499. So to the extent that Apple gets people excited about AR, VR, I think uh, Meta Platform stands to benefit with a much lower price point item. We had on Abby Joseph Cohen from Columbia University, formerly a partner of Goldman Sachs yesterday, and she said she's been talking to computer scientists and her sense is that perhaps people are overly optimistic about the future of artificial intelligence and what some of these chat GPT technologies can actually achieve reliably. Do you agree with that? Do you feel like it's been sort of overplayed, at least to this point? So my concern about it is, 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 you know, as a consumer who grew up with Skynet, but my primary concern is what happens to all the displaced uh, workers if we truly become a fully automated or much more automated society. So what's going to happen to the economy if 25% of the workforce is displaced by automation? So yes, I think that there's uh, way too much hype on what it can mean. Uh, I simply think of you know machine learning as the ability to cipher what is a cat, what is a dog, things of that nature. I think the uh, you know chat to, for customer service is flawed. It may always be flawed. A chat for search has elements that are flawed and may always be flawed. So I think artificial intelligence is a very important technology used responsibly. But I think there's going to be a lot of challenges, including an increase in automation and a displaced workforce. $34.99 makes it sound cheap. $34.99. Tom. <laughs> How are people going to pay for this? 3.5 large. How about that, John? It's huge. So, uh, so basically... Uh, if you look backwards, we could see why Apple's done the credit card, uh, buy now, pay later, things of that nature. I'm of the belief in the future, Apple offer, will offer you a pure subscription. For $250 a month, you get Apple. What does that mean? You might get a Vision Pro headset. You might get the latest iPhone. And then if you're paying $250 a month or whatever it is monthly, you may not think about the two grand you're paying for the iPhone, the 3.5K you're paying for the Vision Pro. So Apple as a monthly bill, it'll be a big bill, but then I think it'll be easier for them to sell some of these higher price products. Tom, I've got to squeeze it in. That's been developing with the headset. 
already. What does that mean for the valuation of the company as you start to get more recurring revenue in that fashion? Well, it meant to hire multiple. So, so the, the beauty of Tim Cook's leadership has been the higher multiple he's achieved uh, by adding services to a strong base of hardware. Uh, the question is, will they be able to complement future hardware and services offerings to massively increase the sales base and then on a higher multiple, increase the stock? And right now we're taking a wait and see attitude. Bingo. Tom, thank you. Tom Forde of DA Davidson at the end there. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Now stay tuned for today's edition of Bloomberg Daybreak. It's your daily news podcast delivering today's top stories to your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern. It's all the news you need in just 15 minutes. The Bloomberg Daybreak Podcast. It starts right now. From the Bloomberg Interactive Brokers Studios, this is Bloomberg Daybreak for Wednesday, June 14th. Coming up today. Former President Trump calls it a day that will go down in infamy after pleading not guilty to federal charges. All eyes are on the Fed as the central bank prepares to issue its latest policy decision. Shell gets a boost. The oil giant ups its dividend and pivots back to fossil fuels. And more legal trouble hits Microsoft's bid for Activision Blizzard. Russian President Putin admits shortcomings fighting Ukraine's counteroffensive plus a federal judge reconsiders a takeover of New York's Rikers Island. I'm Michael Barr. More ahead. I'm John Stashauer in sports. The Yankees beat the Mets. A new coach for the Rangers and the Vegas Golden Knights have won the Stanley Cup. That's all straight ahead on Bloomberg Daybreak. The business news you need to start your day in just one 15-minute podcast. Each morning on Apple, Spotify, the Bloomberg Business app, and everywhere you get your podcasts. Good morning, I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Amy Morris. Here are the stories we're following today. We begin with the major story in politics this morning, the arraignment of former President Donald Trump. The Republican frontrunner pleaded not guilty to 37 federal counts accusing him of willfully retaining top-secret documents. After court, he flew from Miami to Bedminster, New Jersey, where he told supporters he had every right to keep those records. Threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers, which just about every other president has done, is one of the most outrageous and vicious legal theories ever put forward in an American court of law. The former president spoke at a fundraiser that was planned before the indictment. And it was a historic day, making Trump the first ex-president to face federal charges. It all started at a courthouse in Miami. That's where we find Bloomberg's Kaylee Lines. There were hundreds of pro-Trump supporters that were at the courthouse. Police that I spoke with indicated that there had been no violent incidents that they were aware of. And President Trump, after leaving the courthouse, went to a popular Cuban restaurant here in Miami, Cafe Versailles, to speak with some of the reporters. As for where the legal proceedings go from here, this case will move from Miami to West Palm Beach, Florida, where Judge Eileen Cannon, a Trump appointee, will be overseeing it. It then becomes a question of the timeline. President Trump has a reputation for dragging legal proceedings 
things out for quite some time. So we could see this fight going well up to the November 2024 election or perhaps even beyond it. In Miami, Kaylee Lines, Bloomberg News. Okay, Kaylee, thank you. Now, legal analysts say drawing out the case could have benefits for the former president. We caught up with Palm Beach County State Attorney Dave Ehrenberg. The one advantage for Trump is that it gives him a chance to delay matters further. He can challenge the ruling down here, but he's not going to succeed. But in a way, he wins by losing, because by losing in court, he's going to have those delays that he loves because it can push this case beyond the 2024 election. Palm Beach State Attorney Dave Ehrenberg spoke with Joe Matthew on Bloomberg Sound On. You can catch the program at 1 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. We'll have more on Donald Trump's case in just a few minutes, but now let's turn to Wall Street. Traders looking to today's policy decision from the Federal Reserve. The majority of economists expect the Fed to pause and not raise rates for the first time since March of last year. Let's get those details from Bloomberg's Michael McKee. Fed officials went into their two-day meeting divided over whether inflation remains so stubborn that additional rate increases are necessary. Tuesday's benign CPI report likely tips the balance of the argument to those who would put a further move on hold. The central bank has raised the nation's benchmark borrowing rate by more than five percentage points, and inflation is coming down. While investors have priced out a rate move for this meeting, July and future meetings remain on the table, at least for now. Markets will price those odds after today. A new forecast from Fed officials and a new dot plot outlining their rate views, coupled with what Fed Chair Jay Powell says about the outlook. Michael McKee, Bloomberg Daybreak. Okay, Mike, thanks. Join us for live coverage of the Fed decision on a special edition of Bloomberg Surveillance. It starts at 1.30 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and Television. Plus, stay tuned for another reading on inflation. We get that latest read on U.S. producer prices at 8.30 this morning. And turning overseas, the economy is also in focus in the U.K. today. Growth in Britain bounced back in April. Bloomberg's Ewan Potts joins us from London with the details. Good morning, Ewan. Good morning, Amy and Nathan. A strong start to the second quarter for the UK economy. GDP grew by 0.2% in April, following a negative reading in the previous month. The positive data in line with estimates means the British economy dodges the risk of recession. But after hot employment numbers this week, traders have been ramping up bets that the Bank of England will be forced to continue hiking rates throughout the summer. In London, I'm Ewan Potts, Bloomberg Daybreak. Okay, Ewan, thanks. Let's stay in Europe, where big oil is making news this morning. Shell says it will increase its dividend by 15 percent. It's also pivoting back to oil and gas. It's part of Shell's pivot to expand the most profitable parts of its business, even if they are carbon intensive. And oil demand is set to slow dramatically. That's the word from the International Energy Agency. The IEA says consumption in 2024 will grow at half the rate seen in the prior two years. The agency says high prices and Russia's invasion of Ukraine will speed up the transition away from fossil fuels. Okay, Amy, thanks. Back here in the U.S., Microsoft is in the spotlight. The company's acquisition of Activision Blizzard has been temporarily blocked by a federal judge. And we get the story from Bloomberg's John Tucker. The judge issued a temporary restraining order to maintain what he called the status quo while the Federal Trade Commission challenges the deal. The FTC itself filed an emergency motion to halt the merger on Monday. This ruling holds the two companies apart until five days after the court rules on a more permanent pause in the deal. An evidentiary hearing on the longer-term injunction is set to be held in San Francisco later this month. U.S. authorities are not the only ones who've challenged the deal. U.K. competition regulators also vetoed the merger. John Tucker, Bloomberg daybreak. 
Time now to take a look at some of the other stories making news in New York and around the world. For that, we're joined by Bloomberg's Michael Barr. Good morning, Michael. Good morning, Nathan. President Vladimir Putin acknowledged that Russian forces fighting in Ukraine lack sufficient advanced weapons despite a tripling of arms output. Kyiv's forces pressed a counteroffensive. However, regional authorities say Russian forces fired cruise missiles at the southern Ukrainian city of Odessa overnight, killing three people. Meanwhile, President Biden met yesterday with the NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg. In the Oval Office, President Biden said that the U.S. remains committed to supporting Ukraine and defending NATO territory. Stoltenberg acknowledged the latest U.S. military aid to Ukraine, $325 million. Thank you for your leadership, for your strong personal commitment to the transatlantic bond to Europe and North America standing together. And let me also thank uh, the U.S. Congress and the people of America for the strong support to Ukraine. Monday's scheduled meeting with Stoltenberg was postponed to Tuesday because the president had to get treatment for a root canal. A federal judge is once again weighing a takeover of New York City's troubled Rikers Island jail complex. Judge Laura Taylor described her faith in its leadership as shaken following recent reports of violence, gruesome injuries, and a lack of cooperation that has thwarted court oversight. Travelers are catching a break as U.S. airfares and rental car prices have fallen. Bloomberg's Ed Maxter reports. There is a white-hot demand for travel, and travelers saw the lowest prices for airline tickets and rental cars since March of 2021. Now, prices in May fell 13% year-over-year. Prices for rental cars and trucks sank 12% the most since May of 2020, when the pandemic drastically curtailed travel. United CEO Scott Kirby says flight costs are now comparable to what consumers paid a decade ago. He says we're just coming back to normalcy in pricing. In San Francisco, I'm Ed Baxter, Bloomberg Daybreak. House Republicans passed legislation to preemptively block future attempts to restrict gas stoves after overcoming a revolt by the party's conservative members. The bill would prohibit the Independent Consumer Products Safety Commission from using federal funds to ban the appliances as hazardous products. Global News 24 hours a day, powered by more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in over 120 countries. I'm Michael Barr, and this is Bloomberg. Nathan. Thanks, Michael. Time now for the Bloomberg Sports Update, brought to you by Tri-State Audi. Here's John Stashauer. All right, Nathan, wild start to the Subway Series. The second batter was Giancarlo Stanton, his 24th home run at City Field. That's 10 more than any other opposing player. Luis Severino's second pitch was a Brandon Nimmo homer. Severino gave up two runs in the first inning, two more in the second, another in the third. But the Yankees, with five runs in the fourth off Max Scherzer, who got booed by the City Field crowd when he was taken out. The Yanks sent the Mets to their ninth loss in the last 10 games, 7-6. to six. Yankee bullpen has been a strength all season. Six Yankee relievers teamed for four-plus scoreless innings of relief. Tonight, it's Garrett Cole against Justin Verlander. They don't really need a reason to have a party in Las Vegas, but they've got one. First Stanley Cup championship in Golden Knights history comes in their sixth season. The Silver State is home to the greatest silver trophy in all of sports. KKGK, the call. Game 5 of the Cup Final, a blowout win for Vegas. 9-3 over Florida, although the game was only 2-1 midway through the second period. The next thing you knew was 7-1. Hat trick for Vegas captain Mark Stone. Jonathan Marshall won the Consumite Trophy as playoff MVP. 
And the surprising run by the Panthers as the eight seed comes to an end. They had to play without their best player, the injured Matthew Kachuk. Meanwhile, the Rangers have their new coach, 58-year-old Peter Laviolette, continuing his tour of the Metropolitan Division. The Rangers will be the fifth team in the division that he's coached, most recently with Washington. Laviolette briefly played for the Rangers in the late 1980s. He's the eighth winningest coach in NHL history. John Stashower, Bloomberg Sports. From coast to coast, from New York to San Francisco, Boston to Washington, D.C., nationwide on Sirius XM, the Bloomberg Business App, and Bloomberg.com. This is Bloomberg Daybreak. Good morning. I'm Nathan Hager. He is calling it a day that will go down in infamy. But rather than a sneak attack, former President Donald Trump is going after the Justice Department head on, hinting at his defense after pleading not guilty yesterday to federal charges over his handling of classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. For more, we are joined live this morning by Greg Valier, the chief U.S. policy strategist at AGF Investments. Greg, good morning. It's not every day that you see a defendant in a criminal trial uh, speaking out as forcefully as former President Trump did last night at Bedminster. But of course, this is no ordinary criminal defendant. Yeah, good morning, Nathan. I'd make two quick points initially. First of all, good editorial, lead editorial in this morning's Wall Street Journal talking about how Trump is his own worst enemy, uh, saying and doing reckless things that come back to, to bite him. And, and then I think you've got to say, yeah, I watched the whole t- talk he gave last night from Bedminster. He didn't say anything new. I mean, it's the same old stuff, like my uh, detractors are deranged there. You know, you go on and on and on, all of these words that he uses against his detractors, I think, have lost a lot of their potency. But uh, some of the words that he also used sounded like he was reading directly from the Presidential Records Act, which, as you allude to, he's talked about before that would potentially be his defense if he does go to trial here. What does that say about how the former president is going to be pursuing this and the potential political impact? Yeah, very, very aggressively, uh, but at the same time, not in any great rush. I think he'd love to see this coincide with the election campaign of uh, of next year. You know, he, even though people like uh, Bill Barr, the former attorney general, has said that this is outrageous, even Nikki Haley said that it endangers national security, uh, His Trump's conviction in Florida is not certain. I mean, you've got a state where it's going to be difficult to get a jury where everybody agrees that Trump did something wrong. Does this put an onus on the Justice Department or even President Biden to put out more of a public response since the former president is coming out so publicly like this? That's a really interesting angle, Nathan. All of a sudden, there's focus on why uh, the Biden White House has been so passive, uh, instructing Democrats not to go after Trump, uh, not inciting him, not uh, leading to suspicion that there's a collusion between the White House and the Justice Department. But there are a lot of Democrats in this town who I think will very soon begin to really rip into Trump uh, for what he's done. Interesting. Uh, are, are you uh, thinking of any names in particular? I wouldn't think that President Biden would be coming out, at least in the short term, uh, more forcefully than he has. Yeah, I don't see Joe Biden. Actually, Jill Biden last night had a, a fairly uh, critical comment about uh, Trump. But I do think there'll be other uh, Democrats, Democrats who'd like to run for president in four years who'll start to talk pretty uh, aggressively. Okay. Uh, What about the uh, uh, former president's primary opponents who started to see a little bit of a shift uh, for them as well, particularly uh, Nikki Haley and Tim Scott, both out of South Carolina, getting a little bit more forceful in their rhetoric? Do you see that continuing? 
Maybe. I think a lot of these politicians will carefully read the polls, and the polls show, at least initially, the American public, not just Republicans, feel that this is a political, uh, you know, they're ganging up on, on Donald Trump. I think the key politician to watch, obviously, is Ron DeSantis. Uh, if DeSantis starts to move away and there's signs that he might, that would be significant. And it goes back to the point, I guess, that you were making earlier about the former president's words sort of losing their luster a little bit as he uh, continues to hammer out a lot of the uh, the same forceful points he has before. Uh, how do you, do you see the long term effects of this case playing out as it does get closer to a November 2024 election and potentially the case bleeding uh, even after Election Day? Yeah, you got to sustain the momentum. How many times can you call someone a deranged lunatic uh, before it starts to lose its uh, its impact. And I, I do think that while Trump will maintain his base, there's no question in my mind on that, I just don't see Donald Trump having enough support among moderates to win in the general election. Does this case sustain itself even with some of the other legal pressure that the former president is facing and potential further charges, not just from this special counsel, but from Georgia as well? Good point. There are still two uh, um, huge cases to go. I think Georgia uh, may be in the news by later in the summer. It looks like the, that case will be brought. And, of course, the big one of all is January 6th. And I do think that uh, Trump is quite vulnerable because of an extensive uh, record uh, that shows that he encouraged the riots and did nothing to stop them. This is Bloomberg Daybreak Today, your morning brief on the stories making news from Wall Street to Washington and beyond. Look for us on your podcast feed by 6 a.m. Eastern each morning on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. You can also listen live each morning starting at 5 a.m. Wall Street time on Bloomberg 1130 in New York, Bloomberg 99.1 in Washington, Bloomberg 1061 in Boston, and Bloomberg 960 in San Francisco. Our flagship New York station is also available on your Amazon Alexa devices. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Plus, listen coast to coast on the Bloomberg Business app, Sirius XM Channel 119, the iHeartRadio app, and on Bloomberg.com. I'm Nathan Hager. And I'm Amy Morris. Join us again tomorrow morning for all the news you need to start your day right here on Bloomberg Daybreak. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.